0: Welcome to another episode of the Kansas City Symphonies podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I am Stephanie Brimhall. I'm the symphony's education manager.
1: I'm Mike Gordon, principal flute. And I'm Jason Sieber, the associate conductor.
0: So this week we're giving you a behind-the-scenes look at one of the biggest, most important, most time-consuming, most challenging, and most creative parts of being a musician – that is programming. So just choosing what to play is an art all into itself. And that could be a full two-hour subscription concert, a Christmas show, a chamber music concert, concerts for students. Programming is really where it all begins. Uh, later on, we're going to be joined by Kansas City Symphony's associate principal bass, Evan Halloween, who's going to talk with us about some of the fantastic chamber music concerts he's been a part of. But first, let's start with our our conductor, Jason Sieber, who really does more programming than any of us.
1: Well, Stephanie, you know, programming is, I would say, definitely one of the most challenging parts of my job, but it's also one of the most fun parts. I, I try to think of it as I'm a chef, and I'm preparing a pre meal for all of my customers that are coming in that night. And it's, what? how do I balance this meal? How do I make sure they get a little taste of everything? What do, what do I think they want? What do I want them to hear? Um, so there's many things that go into, of course, programming a concert. First of all, I got to know who my audience is. Is it an audience of kids? Is it people that are diehard symphony fans and know the repertoire well? But probably even more important than that, with, with what, the types of concerts that I do, rehearsal time is so important. Almost every concert that I'm preparing with the symphony, I get one rehearsal. So that's not the time to program Scriabin Poem of Ecstasy or Mahler 9 or something like that. We just don't have time to work on that type of music. Um, So I'm trying to pick pieces that are hopefully familiar with the orchestra already, but a lot of times I also like to try to find new music that the orchestra hasn't played and that our audiences haven't heard. And then, of course, another big thing is uh, what personnel is available to me for that given concert. Sometimes we're split as an orchestra, so we don't have all three wind players in each section. And some of the most, uh, some of the biggest challenges come from, okay, I, I have this concert I need to do for kids and we only have two flutes. So I can't pick any piece that's going to require a third flute player or something like that. And then of course, uh, last but not least, I'd say the budget really comes into play. Each concert that we do here at the symphony has a separate budget. And so sometimes like Christmas festival, I get to spend a lot of money on rental music. And that allows us to do some really cool arrangements. And then there are other times where our budget is very limited.
0: So, I mean, speaking of budget, so you mentioned music rental. So some of the music that the orchestra plays, the orchestra owns. And we don't pay anything for that. We just play it, right? But then some of the music we have to rent from the publisher. And so that obviously costs money. And that costs money based on performance, too. So if you're just going to play it once, you know, you get a certain rate. And then you might get a different rate for, you know, repeated performances after that. Sometimes if you do it like on a concert for students, you might get a little bit of a discount. But there are also things that affect the budget like using like a large orchestra, you know, something that may exceed yeah. the number of players that we have in our orchestra in any given section is going to cost more because those players have to come in and get paid for rehearsals. and?
1: Exactly, exactly. I mean, there are there are times, for instance, there's a lot of French repertoire that requires four trumpet players, and, and we have three on our symphony roster. So I'm always trying to be conscientious of those types of things. And when I do pick a piece that uses more uh, than our normal complement of instruments, I try to then pick several pieces on that same program so that we're not bringing in Uh, a fourth trumpet player to play a three-minute piece within a two-hour concert. You know, We want to make it worth the musician's time as well, of course.
2: One of the things that I think is uh, always impressive about people who do a lot of programming is they just seem to have these catalogs of pieces in their heads. They know, oh, I need a 10-minute piece for a full orchestra, but we only have two trumpets, and it's got to be something we can rehearse in 10 minutes. I know, we'll play... Mary had a little lamb, and they just they just know. So, how do you, especially as a conductor, build that catalog in your head that you can just pull out of thin air, or do you really do that? And how how do you how do you just identify uh, pieces?
1: Well, there's definitely a lot of repertoire that you know. With more and more experience, you know that fits those um, categories that you're looking for. But our librarians, Elena and Fabrice, really helped me a ton. When it comes to new ideas, especially when we're when we are on a certain theme for maybe a classic on court concert, they are constantly shooting ideas my way. And without them, I don't think i could I could do it because they are a huge, huge help,
0: no, that's absolutely true. But Jason's being modest because I have to tell you, Jason is a true He has a catalog in his head. I, he really does. <laughs> and what's awesome about the work that I get to do here at the symphony is, I work very closely with the associate conductor because together we program all of our education concerts and we do it really is a com, um, a combined effort. And I feel really fortunate because I've gotten to work. I mean, Jason and I have worked together for how many years now? Four? Three and a half. Three and a half. Three and a yeah. half, four, yeah. Um, and before Jason, um, Aram Demersion was here for several years. And before that, uh, Steve Jarvie was here. And each one of those guys has a tremendous catalog in their brains, but it's all really different too. So I feel really lucky because I'm, you know, as I'm programming with all these different guys, it's, I'm absorbing all of these new ideas and new pieces, and I get to keep adding to my catalog, which, you know, isn't, it's nothing to sneeze at, but it's nothing like what What Jason and Aram and Steve had in their heads.
1: Well, I should mention that, Stephanie, you are someone that is a great resource as well because there are, like you said, many times we're working on these programs together and you always have great ideas, pieces that I'm not familiar with, especially in the educational world, and you've really made some great suggestions along the way as well. But I also must add that all these things are important when considering what's a program, but I think the most important thing is it has to have good Flute parts, right, Mike? Am I right?
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, everything has to have a good flute part. It is a requirement, and in fact, <laughs> uh, I would say that uh, children's concerts, especially, have to have good flute parts. There's something about a kids' concert, and it's really not just flute. It's it's you know all the woodwinds and brass, uh, the soloists of the orchestra. Somehow, that is almost invariably the hardest music. And I think <laughs> Stephanie was it. Was it last season or the season before you programmed Peter and the Wolf on Yes. I don't know how many times I played Peter and the Wolf that season. 11 Do you know? It I was played 11. It 11 times. Uh-huh we played it 11 times and you know if you've ever heard Peter and the Wolf it's just it's such a colorful entertaining wonderful start I mean it doesn't matter if you're a kid an adult it's amazing amazing music but it is so hard and (laughs) basically to a person it is something we work on since we're little and we have to play it for auditions and uh, yeah so I got a whole lot of practice at it and you know, most of the time it went okay. There were a couple of times I felt like an absolute fraud, but I just let those go.
1: <laughs> you sounded brilliant, Mike. And I, you know that you brought up another interesting point. When we do these programs that we repeat six or eight or ten times, whether it's an educational program or the holiday programs, I think all of us that do programming are constantly thinking about. Is this a piece that people are going to get sick of after the second time playing it? And if so, we probably shouldn't pick it. You want to pick music that the musicians are going to enjoy playing and that are going to really engage our audiences as well.
0: That's right. So speaking of musicians, you know, Jason, you and I have talked about how we program things but how does the the programming process affect the musicians I, like for example like when you get those parts like when do you actually get the music
2: yeah that's a great question so this whole programming process starts sometimes years in advance and uh, me receiving my music is one of the final steps in that chain you know I'll get my music uh I forget what's his, what the exact stipulation is in our contract I think it's like a month or three weeks before something like that uh, and oftentimes you know I always joke there's there's only a few kinds of music there's music I know there's music that's hard that I also know and there's music that's sight readable so I don't have to worry about that and then there's a little bit of music that I don't know that's also really hard And actually, it's more than just a little bit. But yeah, so the stuff that comes around that is hard that I don't know, that kind of occupies most of my practice time at home. And then there is a lot of stuff that is difficult, but I'm familiar with. Uh, So that private preparation process will go on for, you know, sometimes a month or more. Uh, and then the rehearsals, like Jason said, there might be one rehearsal for a concert the day of, there might be a few, but not many.
0: I think that's interesting too. I mean, going back to that Prokofiev, just because it's a big symphonic classical concert, or if it's an educational concert for kids, that doesn't necessarily dictate how easy or difficult it's going to be. Each one requires many times like a substantial amount of practice, regardless of how many rehearsals or performances there are going to be.
2: Yeah, that's really true. And it's not necessarily intuitive to the outside observer what would be difficult and what wouldn't be. I mean, you'd think, you know, a children's concert that we play 11 times would be relatively low stress, and often they are, but in other times they're not. Uh, And you would think, you know, the most preparation that I'm doing is maybe going into a a subscription concert or something where we're playing, you know, two hours of really uh, intense music. And oftentimes that's true, but not always it just depends
0: well i mean speaking of the amount of time so a 2 hour concert like a, there might be a piece on that program that's 60 minutes right there's there's also like a difference in having to sit there and be super focused in one piece of music for an hour versus you know playing these little short three or four minute pieces that might be really difficult in and of them themselves, but at least you get to be done with it after four minutes and give your brain a little rest <laughs> and then go on, right?
2: Yeah, that's really true. Like, uh, you know, sometimes you play something like uh, a, like a Mahler 9, for instance, which is about, I don't know what, a 90 minute symphony or so. And one of the or the biggest flute solo in the whole piece is right toward the end of the piece. So you know, there's really, there's really no, and there's uh, there's a lot of other uh, difficult stuff that's that's not solo. So there's really no rest for ninety minutes. Uh, on the other hand, you might play something like I'm trying to think of a good example, like maybe um, Daphnis, even second suite of Daphnis and Daphnis and Chloe, uh, Ravel, huge flute solo, iconic flute solo. You play it, and then it's over. So you know the the most uh, sort of mentally taxing part of the part of the performance for me is over in you know a minute and a half even though the rest of the piece is really challenging
0: so a lot of these programs that we do um most of them in fact aren't just thrown together with you know three or five or seven different pieces that we all just really want to play right i mean there's often um a a theme that ties everything together and that can happen in any genre of of performance so on a classical series concert um you know, when Michael Stern puts together the program, he's really not just picking stuff that he wants to conduct or, you know, we haven't done in a while or whatever. There really is very often a formula to how those programs are put together. And that's true of of really basically every series of concerts that we do.
1: Yeah, you know, um, I think it's fun to not only put together a thematic idea within a program, but also, also over the course of a season, especially in our classical series, um, for instance, this year we're celebrating some anniversaries, of course, with Beethoven's 250th. Uh, it's Isaac Stern's 100th uh, birthday, so we've been doing a lot of performances featuring soloists that that really knew Isaac well and uh, were a big part of his life. And a lot of times you can have a theme that just kind of runs throughout, may- maybe not even the whole season, but just like four weeks of the season. And I think that's interesting. Next year, uh, I know we're opening our season with a Brahms and Schumann piece. You know, Brahms and Schumann had such an, a great uh, relationship with, with Brahms learning a lot from Schumann and everything else. So I think there's lots of cool, creative things you can do you your programming to have overarching themes as well, not just within one program, but over several.
2: I want to talk about another type of programming that we do that uh, is a really important part of being a musician in general, and a really important part of the music uh, that we play in Helzberg Hall, and that's chamber music. Uh, and you know, you would think that uh, chamber music would be easier to program, perhaps since it involves fewer people. Uh, but in many ways, it's even more difficult. Uh, I, you know, uh, Jason, you mentioned a uh, cooking analogy earlier. I often think of programming chamber music. It's a little bit like being on that cooking show, Chopped. Uh, you know, where a where a chef gets a mystery basket of it a basket of ingredients that don't necessarily intuitively go together. You know, I'll be coming up with a, a program for something, and there are always all these odd constraints. Like I need a ten minute piece that happens to be for marimba viola and a piccolo and if possible it would be great if it was a 19th century italian work because that would fit into the theme of some other repertoire Mm -hmm. we're doing and Mm -hmm. uh oh by the way we can't afford to rent a score and we only have three days together to rehearse and no one has a car big enough to move the marimba out of my friend's basement (laughs) you know what should we play that is a Difficult basket, for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, well, at this point, I'd love to introduce our guest for this week, Evan Hallowen. He is the Associate Principal Bass of the Kansas City Symphony, a good friend of ours, and someone with whom... I've played a lot of chamber music, someone who is incredibly thoughtful about chamber music, programming of chamber music concerts, and uh, through the magic of technology, in spite of social distancing and against all odds, he is able to join us, however crackly, uh, via iPhone uh, from his home. So welcome, Evan. Thanks so much for being with us today.
3: Hey, thanks, Mike. Uh, Yeah, great to be here. I I love talking about music, so... uh... Thanks for inviting me to join you all.
0: You know what I think, too, is if you need help moving the marimba out of the basement, Evan plays the bass. So he has to have a car big enough. So I've found that guy for you. I solved it. Problem solved. For sure.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Every bass player has a hatchback, at least. So (laughs) yeah, we we have a really special chamber music series at the Kansas City Symphony, which is uh, really near and dear to all the musicians and just to describe it real quickly, we call it the Happy Hour series, and it, it's an hour-long concert. It happens six or seven times a year. It it's, uh, happens on weekdays at 6 p.m. So it's, it's kind of like a less formal, more user-friendly kind of program. And, and we really would love it if everyone in Kansas City had a chance to hear a concert in Hellsberg Hall. And also we would love for everyone to hear the musicians of the Kansas city symphony because we're, you know, it's a great collection of musicians. So we have this great chamber music series and uh, I've been an, uh, part of the committee of musicians that has been involved in programming it for maybe four years. I've done it and it's a real complicated process. It's, it's, uh, I mean, it's fun in, in that sense that like a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle is fun. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, it's a challenge. Um, and the way it works is we, we invite all the musicians to uh, propose repertoire that they want to play, either you know, a single piece or an entire program around a theme. We have a committee of musicians and staff that go from there and try and whittle it down. And uh, it's, it's a challenge.
0: When musicians pick pieces and they submit those pieces... It- What do you guys, what process is going through a musician's head? Because I know like when Jason and I do it, you know, we have very specific guidelines and ideas in mind. But Evan and Mike, I mean, when you guys are picking music, are you picking stuff that you just really want to play? Like it has a really awesome double bass part. So you Hmm. want to do that? Or like, how does that work?
3: Well, you know, I think most musicians are probably picking music they really want to play. First and foremost, that's what they're thinking about. And that's great because I really feel like in order for a concert to have an impact on the audience, the most important thing is for them to to believe that the musicians are really committed to the music they're playing and that they um, that they really love it and that they really want to champion it. You know, so especially if, if I'm talking to an audience, if I'm going to introduce a piece, I try and keep it real simple and I usually say, you know, I love this piece because... And then I fill in the blank. And it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. You know, I don't want to use the word selling, but sort of like what's the better word? I guess yeah, selling music to an audience. It, it, no, there's a better word. Somebody think of it.
1: <laughs> uh,
2: you you check your thesaurus, yeah. but I, I I should I should add because uh you know, Evan is is a humble guy. Uh you are one of the best uh speakers that we have at these concerts. And and in general, I think the most powerful thing about these concerts is you know, we we don't uh in any way make these programs deliberately, you know, accessible. I hate to use that word because it sort of has a icky connotation to it for me, but you know, we, we play all kinds of music. Uh, Many, you know, many of the pieces we play are totally unfamiliar to our audience, but because we try to create this personal connection with our audience and with the music, uh, people really enjoy it. And, you know, if, if uh we tell the audience, you know, why we're excited about it, we get them excited about it. And Evan, you do as good a job at that
1: as anybody. I have a quick question. Um, with themes for the happy hour programs, do you guys look at pieces that people want to play and then kind of come up with a recurring theme, or does it the other way around where you say okay let's do a program about world war 1 perhaps and what pieces can we fit into that and what do people have proposals for those types of pieces which which is it the chicken or the egg what do you usually start with
3: i think i think some some of both it depends you know some musicians will propose a program that has a real cohesive theme and we can use that and some musicians will propose just one piece or or a couple pieces and if someone else proposed something that sort of fits with it we can kind of uh, fit them together really well. And and sort of what you asked earlier about um, what people are thinking about when they propose music. I mean, uh, one time I sat down and tried to write out some guidelines for everyone. Okay, like, you know, can, think about this, that, and the other thing, the budget, the timing, the number of musicians, all that stuff. And I, I, I wanted to make rules, and I couldn't make any rules. there Because it's it's more like loose guidelines, and you kind of have to strike a balance. You know, you can't say, for example, for the Chamber Music series it costs us extra to use piano so you can't you, you can't say don't pick music with piano because every once in a while we're able to do that but if if everyone wants to use piano then we can't you know accommodate everyone so um, same thing with the length of you know pieces we can't have hour long pieces if if we want to you know showcase more musicians and, and stuff like that i think you know some of the themes that have come up yeah, so some of them have been proposed by musicians and some of them have been cobbled together by the committee. And uh, I think also, you know, not every program needs the most overt theme if people are playing music they really want to play. You know, sometimes Haydn's string quartet number or whatever is just pure music and it doesn't necessarily have, like, uh, a subtitle that lends it to connect to something else. And I, I would love to just hear it and you know enjoy it as it
0: is. Sometimes the theme then is just good music. Like that's sure. a theme that's just fine. <laughs> yeah,
3: it's fine with me.
2: Yeah. One of the things that I think makes uh these programs and chamber music in general so uh powerful is there's there's a vulnerability to it, right? And that's that's kind of what you're talking about a little bit in in relating to other aud- to the audience with your speaking, but but you know, there's a degree to which I think our audience assumes that things always go perfectly. They never, they never go awry. There's never a, a mistake because you know that's that's what being a professional is. As much as possible, we try to create this uh, this magic, this illusion, this seamless, so that people can enjoy the music, and we worry about the the screw ups. But I have to say, some of my greatest screw ups have <laughs> happened in happy hour concerts, and I think. <laughs> I think it's worth it to ask you, Evan. Are there, were there any concerts that presented a particular challenge where something went really awry? That was either, you know, just kind of humorous in retrospect. Because I definitely have one that I will share, but <laughs> I, I want to know what your answer is first.
0: Hmm. Um. I can't.
2: Or is Evan just flawless? No, while Evan's gone wrong.
0: <laughs> while Evan thinks about it, I have yeah, a question, maybe. Mike. Because yeah. we're talking about happy hour concerts. Is it because you have participated in happy hour before the happy hour concert? Is that is that what's going wrong? That's what
1: I was that's what I was gonna well, ask.
0: That's
2: a great question, Stephanie. And um no is the short answer to that. <laughs> no. The happy hour for me always comes after the happy hour. Mm-hmm. Well, I I'll share my story because Evan, see, this is why we had Evan on. Evan is just, he's always cool and under control always. and everything goes right. So uh, so I played this piece on a happy hour concert uh, several years ago. It was a, a Kaya Sarriaho piece. Don't ask me to spell Sariajo on our podcast here, but it's with two A's. You'll find it. Um, Finnish composer, uh, she wrote this piece called Terrestra, which was for flute. Uh, I believe it was flute, harp, violin, cello, percussion, if I remember correctly. Anyway, um, it was a really cool piece. And from the moment we started the performance, I could tell things were going to be rocky. Not, Not because we were unprepared. Number one, it was a really challenging piece. And number two, it had all of these elements in it where I had to actually make vocalizations, like say nonsense words quite loudly in the middle of playing the flute. And there's a wonderful recording of this piece by uh, Claire Chase, which you should all find on YouTube or wherever. And she is just brilliant at this because it's, you know, I think it works more effectively for somebody with a higher pitched voice. And in preparing the piece, I was thinking like, gosh, how, how am I going to capture, you know, this, this world of you know, nature and I can't make these high chirping sounds very well. So I thought, well, this is just going to have to be an aggressive bird, I suppose. And so I get to the first spot in the piece where, uh, this happened and I make, you know, one of these vocalization sounds and a couple people in the audience just start laughing. And I thought, oh boy, this is going to be a long ride because there's a lot more of these to come. <laughs> <laughs> and it kept happening. And then, and then in the second movement, I was admittedly a little a little rattled at that point. In the second movement, the the flute has kind of a, a solo through the movement and the other instruments are playing, you know, a slow mini bar long uh, passage that just keeps repeating over and over. So somewhere along the way, I got off from everyone, but I didn't know it, because they're just playing the same thing over and over again, and I get to the end of the piece, <laughs> and they are somehow nowhere near the end of the piece. <laughs> And so at this point, I'm just, you know, kind of improving. like I jump back a little bit, I play a passage over again, they're still not at the end of the piece, I'm kind of peeking back at them. Only time in my whole professional career I have turned back a page after getting to the end, (laughs) just to have something new to play, (laughs) until we got to the end. Oh, it was...
1: Isn't that the uh, number one rule in ensemble playing, that if if you still have notes and everyone else is done, you should stop, and and vice versa, if if you are not done but it, or if everyone else is still playing and you're done you should turn back I a page
2: mean, yeah you just keep doing something yeah. and i think uh hopefully i'm sorry kaya sorry aho if you happen to hear this you probably won't i will we'll try it again sometime we'll get it right
0: isn't is there like a a instrumental equivalent to like mouthing along i mean you you could have just been moving your fingers you know right it's like when you're supposed to like mouth the words like elephant shoe when you're singing along if you if you don't know the words right is there not an instrumental uh, instrumental equivalent to that
3: well i think in the case of that piece mike you could have just thrown some more bird calls right
0: (laughs) i
2: i probably should have
1: (laughs) you should have gone through your entire bird call repertoire at that point cuckoo quail you you play some Bird Sounds in Beethoven 6. You could have thrown some of those in there.
0: You could have just done Peter and the Wolf.
1: There you go. The the, the Bird of I Peter. could have just
2: thrown in Peter. It was... Where were yeah, we but, when you know, needed us? I don't know where you were. <laughs> Evan, you still... You can't think of anything I, I thought of even one thing, remotely actually, close to that.
3: I did think of uh, one, one interesting moment in the very last Happy Hour concert I played where actually I wasn't playing. I was turning pages for uh, Sean Chen, your last guest, and... And you were playing, Mike. And, uh, but anyway, I, I didn't get a chance to look at the music before actually being on stage turning pages for him. And we got to the very last page, and I thought, oh, that looks like the last page. It's about to end. But the curl of the page was such that I couldn't see the double bar line at the end. And I was counting, and, that, and I thought, oh, that's the last measure. And then he played another measure. And I thought, oh, my God, I need to turn the page real quick. So I jumped up and like grabbed the page and turned it, and he played the last note. And he turned and looked at me like, what are you doing? Luckily, it didn't destroy the performance, but it was a, you know, I almost, I almost messed him.
0: I have to say that turning pages for me, I mean, I've played in concerts, I've played with orchestras, I've played recitals, I've spoken during concerts, I've Mm -hmm. sung during concerts, Jason, I've danced during concerts, you know. You have. But the most nervous I have ever been in a performance has been when I've been turning pages. It is such a nerve-wracking job because, you. I mean, you know, when when you're doing it for yourself, you're in charge of your own mistakes, but you don't want to be in charge of somebody else's mistakes. All right, Evan, so before we let you go, we have started a tradition where we ask everybody on the show what their favorite drink is. So I want to know, when you're at home trying to think of the perfect bass duet to complement a Mozart flute quartet... Or, after you've just finished a, a performance, what is your beverage of choice?
3: uh well, I don't want to break any rules here, but can I say espresso is that allowed? I that's know it allowed. Doesn't have
2: okay I, we'll take that
3: I know it, it, I wouldn't drink that after a concert because then I wouldn't sleep, but i th- that's just the the beverage that I am most passionate about so
0: <laughs> so but would you drink it before a concert?
3: you know. If I have anything after like noon I can't sleep, so <laughs> <laughs> unless it's a, a an afternoon concert, maybe. Yeah. But it's I can't it's, drink yeah. a lot of it. I just I just savor it,
0: you know. So you're an espresso drinker. All right. Yeah. Where then do you and your lovely wife Margaret like to go for a drink? Do you have a favorite coffee bar or a favorite post concert bar? There's Anywhere? there's a
3: lot of great coffee shops in Kansas City. Actually, there's there's it's kind of amazing how many good ones there are. I like Oddly Correct and Monarch Coffee and Second Best and Messenger and I can go on. And then and as far as like after concert, I mean, there's a lot of places downtown that are good. Um, Tannen is really good. Oak and Steels just really close now is nice. And there's some places yeah. around our house we go. Yeah, change it up, I guess.
0: All right, and then one other question we like to ask everybody is mm-hmm. if you got to sit down with Beethoven in a bar, is there mm-hmm. one question you'd like to ask him?
3: There's a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: probably
3: would, I would probably ask him a really nerdy question about specifically, how do you want the bass players to phrase your recitative in the Ninth Symphony or something like that, which would be interesting to a small group of people. But I think that's probably what I'd ask him. Yeah. How, what's the tempo of this excerpt? Something like that. Awesome. Yeah.
1: And then he would tell you I gave you a metronome marking but no one ever follows it. So what's the point, you know? <laughs> I think it's that's always a big thing. Now, wasn't it? Well, there's debate about that. <laughs> okay. I, right. He was obsessed with tempos and of course the metronome was invented during his lifetime and that's when he went back and added metronome markings to many of his symphonies. And speaking of Beethoven symphonies, um we like to close every segment with uh, our recommended listening for the week and I have been revisiting all the Beethoven symphonies this week. Uh, this is a big Beethoven year, of course. We were supposed to be playing a lot of Beethoven right now. And uh, my favorite recording, I would say, of the Beethoven symphonies is a more recent one. It was done probably 15, 20 years ago uh, with David Zinman and the Tonhalle Orchestra uh, in Zurich. Um, he was one of the first conductors to conduct the new Rider edition, which is a big, nerdy uh, musical thing for us that we know about as musicians. Um, and he really does take Beethoven's tempos. And some of those faster tempos, which are almost impossible, are thrilling and exciting, and it's such a great orchestra. And so I've been revisiting those this week.
2: And uh, I was thinking about chamber music, and specifically chamber music that I've performed with Evan. And uh, a little while back, Evan and I performed this uh, trio called the uh, Concertino for Flute by Erwin Schulhoff. And there's a wonderful recording of that on Spotify. Uh, It's one of my favorite pieces. It's with Fenwick Smith, flute, uh, Mark Ludwig, uh, viola, and Edwin Barker, bass. They're all uh, musicians from the Boston Symphony. Fenwick Smith is an absolute legend, was an absolute legend, unfortunately, someone uh, with whom I worked a bit when I was young, and unfortunately, he passed away at a relatively young age uh, from Alzheimer's just a few years ago, but he was the second flute player in Boston Symphony for a long, long time, and a teacher and mentor to so many uh, incredible musicians, and I think it's a wonderful recording of one of my favorite pieces, so check it now, out. now
0: I also went the chamber music route, and uh, one of... My favorite pieces to play as a clarinetist was the Prokofiev Quintet. I don't know, Evan, have you played the Prokofiev Quintet?
3: Oh, yes, yeah, one of my favorites as well. <laughs>
0: Super fun! So it's mm-hmm. oboe, clarinet, violin, viola, and double bass, and it's, I just think it's a it's a great listen. And I'm recommending um, the uh, recording of the Berlin Soloists, um, which is just it's a it's a terrific group, a terrific piece. Evan, do you have a favorite, uh, r- recommended listening for today?
3: Yeah, actually, I'm going I'm to recommend two things. Um, one of the happy hour chamber music programs I was most proud of, I was inspired to put it together by stuff I found on YouTube. And, and um, w- what I did is I paired uh, an arrangement I did of some of the fugues from Bach's well-tem- well-tempered clavier uh, with the Grossa Fugue by Beethoven, which we did as a small string orchestra. So um, the Emerson Quartet also did an arrangement of the, the Bach well-tempered Clavier fugues. There's a whole album of them and you can find, I think they're all on YouTube as well. And then there's a really great recording of the Australian chamber orchestra on YouTube playing, uh, Beethoven's grosser fugue. That, that piece was originally written as a string quartet as the finale to one of his late quartets, but it really works well as its own discrete piece. And it, and it works really well with, uh, more players and an expanded, uh, uh, compliment of musicians. And it's, it's just a wild bonkers piece. And especially when you you hear what Bach did, which was so beautiful. And, and, you know, there are two three minute pieces, and then you hear what Beethoven did over the course of 16 minutes. And just he took it so much further. Um, it's just such an interesting pairing to me. And, and uh, so I would recommend uh, giving those pieces a listen.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Evan, for being with us today. It was great chatting with you.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: So next week, it's all about the young people. Uh, We're going to take a deep dive on how to bring classical music to students um, of a variety of ages. We're going to talk with a local teacher about music in the classroom. And we'll discuss several different ways to get kids engaged in music all the way from infants through college next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar.